certainly take him or her or them, they, uh, right into the next room. We do have a screen there that uh, continues to show the, is it working? I guess it's working back there. It's not working. Well, it's a nice place to quiet your children. <laughs> and maybe the power will come back. So, all that being said, please turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. For our visitors, we have begun a series of expositions through the epistle to the Hebrews. We have, <clears throat> we have truly dropped anchor before we even left the shore uh, to consider the first four verses. They are central to understanding the rest of the, the, the book. Uh, if we don't really get the themes and the power of the things that are being said, and we'll be touching on some of those again today and for the next few weeks, <clears throat> we will often miss many of the wonderful treasures that are unfolded through Hebrews. It is a most remarkable work. And uh, all, of, all of the scriptures are the inspired and infallible word of God. And all of them hide the treasures of Christ in them. We'll just go looking. But the fact is, Hebrews truly is uh, one of the most remarkable works in all of Scripture, especially the way it connects the Old Covenant with the New and the superiority of the New Covenant to the Old. So, that being said, let's stand together. We will read this together again. <clears throat> Very thankful uh, that some of you have enjoyed and have been blessed by our reading the scripture passage together. Um, <clears throat> and we will continue that at least while we're here. <clears throat> now... We will read verses 1 through 4, and let's begin. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained more excellent name than they. Amen. Let's remain standing just for the prayer that follows. My Father in heaven, again we come to thee, and we appeal that thou and thy mercy would hear us and restore the power. But Father, greater than our comfort, we pray that thy mighty power would be in our midst. Father, help us. Speak to us in the power of thy word. May thy mighty spirit 
move the hearts of all those that are gathered here today. And may every heart and soul and mind be touched by the truth that is set here before us. Oh, expose Christ to us. Illuminate Christ to us. Display Christ to our hearts. We are hungry for Him. And I ask it all, pleading for Thy blessings upon Thy people. In the name of Christ, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The believers in Christ to whom this letter was written faced a coming crisis, persecution. They had not yet spilled their blood to seal their testimony of faith in Christ. In other words, they were not yet martyrs. But the thought of persecution was driving them to consider turning away from the faith in Christ, as it does in every generation. People will say they love Christ until it costs them something, especially personal comfort, health, life. For Jewish believers, the temptation to return to the old covenant religion was obvious and attractive. Judaism was protected under Roman law. Christians were not. So there was a safe harbor just waiting for those who were ready to go back to their old covenant religion. The Holy Spirit will say to them and to us in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, for consider him For consider him, Jesus, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood. Therefore, the theme of this book is persevering faith in perilous times. And how does the Holy Spirit exhort believers to endure? By revealing the the surpassing glory, the stunning beauty, and the matchless superiority of Jesus Christ and His saving work. Whatever preparations one may wait, uh, put together that that may uh, take time, money, and all the rest, whatever preparations one may make, there's no preparation for dark days like knowing Jesus Christ and walking faithfully with him. 
That's what's happening here. This book touches on this quite clearly. I might put it to us in the form of a question. Are you ready for persecution? Are you personally ready for the hatred and force of demons and people to persecute and destroy the Christ believers in this world? Are you ready? Best way to be ready is to know the one who's holding the universe together. That's the Lord Jesus. Now, by revealing the surpassing glory, the stunning beauty, and the matchless superiority of Jesus Christ and his saving work, we may prepare our hearts for anything that happens, any difficulty. Persecution is not the only challenges that we, we find in this world. There are many things that happen to us as believers that could cause us to despair if we had no hope, no living hope in Christ Jesus. Jesus and the new covenant, says the entire epistle to the Hebrews, are better than the now empty shell of old covenant religion. The great tragedy is that is where the Jews were running rather rather than to the revelation of Christ Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he has done fills every chapter of this letter. We can put it another way. The author's argument is Christological. The argument, the things set before the believers that read this is a Christological argument. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. In two previous sermons, we have discovered the contrast between the way God has spoken throughout the ages In the time of the fathers, God spoke in various times and ways. It was fragmentary and came in a multitude of ways. But now in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The Holy Spirit takes seven descriptions of God's son To show us his incomparable superiority. Seven descriptions of God's son. To show us his incomparable superiority to the prophets of old. If that's never never hit you. You shouldn't be able to read this the same way again. Why does he speak of the son and then mount up one line after another to say, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets 
And they were God's servants. There is no one like Christ. So the Holy Spirit takes these and sets them before us. It's like he has just taken a treasure chest, opened up the top and poured it out on us. Diamonds, rubies, jewels, silver, gold, all of the things that men hold precious, they're nothing compared to Christ. Nothing. And if there is something that's in your life vying for Christ's place, it's an idol. There is no other Savior. There is no other Lord than our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I will tell you, as long as you are living in this flesh, the world will every day, and your flesh will try to cooperate, will try to set something before you, just some worldly way of thinking to take your mind off the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we must sit with a 24-hour video in our minds uh, running. Of course, that would be idolatrous, wouldn't it? Just like all these movies that are made about Jesus. They all look, this, uh, <laughs> look different. <clears throat> God knows what his son looks like. We will someday. Not going to happen in this world. So, all of that to tell us. <clears throat> something is always going to be working. Something. Just to pull us off of Christ. We have jobs, we have families, and those are all part of what God has given us. He's told us to work, so we need to do our work to his glory. We need to go out and buy food or at least grow it and harvest it. That's all part of life. So don't think that I'm talking about normal, lawful things that God has called us to. I'm just talking about the trinkets and the toys and the trash that the world sets before you every day. So, Christ is incomparably superior, not only to the old covenant, but to everything else in existence. <clears throat> As we'll see, he's the creator of all of it, of this world. So we will now begin to examine seven descriptions of Christ's superiority or God's son. <clears throat> Seven descriptions of God's glorious Son or Christ's superiority. That is the title of our message, and this is part one. May our gracious and merciful Father fill us with his Spirit so that we might comprehend something of the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And no, it doesn't say, and know about the love of Christ. It says to know. This is a personal experience. To know from the word of God, by the power of the Spirit, to know the love of Christ. It passes knowledge. May God be pleased to grant it to us. 
So that brings us to our first head, and it's this. God has spoken in these last days in His Son. God has spoken in these last days in His Son. This is verses 1 and the first portion of uh, verse 2. The text, the sacred, the Spirit-breathed text says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past under the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now, last time, we briefly considered the two phrases, in times past and in these last days. First, we considered time past, which pointed to the Old Covenant revelation. It is the revelation of God and His eternal purpose as it was delivered by the prophets. And there were times when God spoke plainly without human activity. Now, and in these last days, that points to these days of the new covenant. And we're still in those days when the author of Hebrews said, in these last days, we're still in them. As we said, now, we considered who spoke in the two ages. That was our next thought. Who, who spoke in those two ages? Well, the prophets in time past and God's son in these last days. We also considered to whom God spoke to each period in the first under the old covenant or sometimes, as you will hear me say occasionally because it's here in Hebrews, under the first covenant, he spoke to the fathers, the ancestors, of the Jews <clears throat> and to us he spoke to believers when Hebrews was written he was writing to contemporaries but that voice comes down to us in every generation thankfully God is still speaking he's still speaking in his son and may we hear him may we have the joy may we have the pleasure may we have the blessing May we have the heavenly gift of hearing him. Not just taking in another sermon, but hearing him and loving him because of what we hear. Now, Christ is the final and definitive revelation of God's purpose. Everything in the old covenant was pointing to him. The old covenant was promises made. The new covenant is promises fulfilled. That's the way the Bible is structured. And he is not only the revelation of, of God's purpose, but of God's will until Christ returns. What Jesus said when he walked on this earth applies to us now. Oh, that's an old book. It's 2,000 years old. <clears throat> it's a book whose truth will endure forever because it's not a popular book written to loose, lighten the load of your wallet. <laughs> uh, 
be a lot of books are just just written to get that money out of your pocket or out of your purse. This was written to save our souls from hell. This was written to save us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to bring us into that glorious union with God who made the universe. To know him and to walk with him in all of life. This is it. This is the doorway. This book is where we meet and fellowship with our God by the power of his spirit. So, this final and definitive revelation of God's purpose and will in Christ led us to the subject of eschatology. Eschatology, as we learned last week, means the last things. So, in these last days means that Christ's people have been in the last days for 2,000 years. We often think of, the, of eschatology as referring only to the moments just right up or to the, the period of time just before Christ's second coming. Christ's second coming is a part of this age. We're in the last days. It will close with his coming. So we've, we've been last day people for over 2,000 uh, 2, years. <clears throat> and we often think then of, of uh, eschatology just as the second coming and or the day of judgment and heaven and hell. Those four things are what you study most of the time if you formally study eschatology. <clears throat> However, in one sense, that is true, but we have taken a broader view, as many are today. This is not something original with me. In another sense, everything since God's act of creation has had the last days, and the return of Christ in view. Let's remember who created the heavens and the earth. The one whose story is being played out right now. History without any question is the unfolding. Uneven it seems to us. Ragged. Mysterious. Doesn't make any sense sometimes. But it's all God's wise providence as he moves everything from let there be light to the glory of Christ Jesus rending the heavens and coming down. Everything's been moving in that direction. It has never slowed down. Now, if we take that view, I certainly do, and, I, and it's because I believe it's plainly what the scriptures itself teaches. <clears throat> we, we put it, this way, with two things to remember, which would be helpful to us in thinking about eschatology and the way I'm mentioning it. <clears throat> First things begin with last things in view. First things begin with last things in view. That's the first one. 
<clears throat> First things, let there be light. When God said, let there be light, as I said last week, he was beginning the glories of creation. And why was he creating? To make a theater for the outworking of his sovereign purpose. So there would be a place and a time in which those of you that have believed would believe. So first things begin with last things in view. When you're saved, everything isn't over yet. When you are saved, there is an eternity to look for following the glorious return of Christ. <clears throat> that means everything along the way properly understood, going from Genesis all the way to Revelation, everything in Genesis is forward-looking. That's why in the third chapter, it says <clears throat> that, the, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. <clears throat> that's, what, that's in the future. It's coming. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Something I think about the heat is uh, aggravating my sinuses. <clears throat> so, first things begin with last things in view. You can remember that. First things begin with last things in view. And last things fashion, shape, First things, in order for God <clears throat> to rend the heavens as his son comes and sets up for that glorious last day, <clears throat> there had to be steps between let there be light and the coming of Christ, and then from the coming of Christ until his return, his first coming to his second coming. Everything, it's shaped it. Whenever you look at history and go, I, still, I really don't get it. It's God at work. It is God at work. Well, it looks crazy out there. I mean, everybody's losing their minds. You haven't seen anything yet. It's all going to go ultimately the Lord's way. In His astonishing power, there is some sense in which we are all unquestionably responsible for everything we have thought, said, and done. <clears throat> and yet, even in all our stumblings, God's going to bring it to pass His way. And when His Son comes to straighten everything out, it will be glory beyond our ability to comprehend Except God's people will have been made so that they can truly comprehend things that they've never seen or understood before. Those that die without Christ will understand this. Depart from me. I never knew you. And they will be cast into everlasting burnings. Joy unspeakable and sorrow in a horrific way. But that's the way it's going to be. <clears throat> now, having said that, I'll repeat it one more time. First things begin with the la last things in view, and last things fashion or shape 
first things. What you're seeing is God working it out according to bringing that end, that goal. Explaining it that quickly may leave you with more questions than I've answered, but if you're actually thinking about it, I'm grateful that you're thinking. So Paul wrote to the Romans, for whom he did foreknow God, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the plan. That is the program. That's what God planned before the foundation of the world. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Ah, so the son that's being talked about here is the firstborn of all God's children. Even though he came at a different time. He is the firstborn. Oh, what a beautiful term. It means many things. It's a title. Sometimes it simply means the first child that a woman bears and brings into this world. Sometimes it's a proper use of firstborn. A lot of times it's a title. The firstborn in, in uh, Jewish religion, the firstborn was the one with the rights and privileges of the inheritance. So you might have a son who was the first born from his mother's womb or her mother's womb but they might be so rebellious and so angry and such a headache that the title could go over to somebody else we even actually see that in the scriptures now with with that being said Jesus would be the firstborn of many brethren. And as we read the Holy Scriptures, we see God's eternal purpose unfold this way. God had a plan. God had a goal in view. And he took all the steps that were necessary to accomplish that plan. He knew it before the foundation of the world. And in his greatness, he's unfolding it exactly his way even when it is so mysterious to us. So I could put it this way to you. First things, creation and the steps of redemption, the steps to redemption, began with last things, God's people being made like Christ, in view. Now that should encourage God's people for those that are truly His those that have repented and believed on him, they will will endure. Because God has not left the program in their hands. If it were left to us, none of us would make it. So, First things, creation and the steps to redemption began with last things, God's people being made like Christ in view. And last things, the transformation of God's people in that glorious and splendid light in which they will live forever. But it won't be from sources that can be cut off. Christ will be the light in all that place. Christ and his Father, there will be no night there. 
No night. It will be a glorious place of heavenly love and joy. No disagreements, no arguments, no failing. None. Well, to get there, there had to be some extraordinary planning, right? And the Lord accomplished it in Christ Jesus. He has spoken to us in these days in his son. So these last things are determined by first things, which are all the steps by which God would wisely bring redemption to pass, which all focused on his precious son, Jesus Christ. Some of y'all don't know him here. I wish you knew him. I wish you knew him. For those of you that do know him, you know the glory and the joy of what it means to rest in a Savior who came according to God's plan, accomplished according to God's plan, is applying according to God's plan, and preserving according to God's plan. Those things would all have to be done and and many, 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 many more for us to get there. But it was all in Christ's blood, his person, his work. And that's why he's better than the old covenant. That's why his revelation is better than any other revelation. Now, having said that, to show the vast superiority of God's Son, who has spoken unto us, the Holy Spirit sets forth seven descriptions of Christ. These, you want a feast for your soul. Take each one of these things and think about it until what it means and implies begins to fill your heart and mind. It's easy to run over them really quickly. You don't want to do that. At least if you have the time, make the time. That's one of the good uses of the Lord's day. Just kind of get away from everybody if you can and go sit down and meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as you meditate on him, Love for him begins to grow in your heart and you will commune with him. You will pray. You will praise him. Something I'm going to read to you in just a few moments. I was sitting and reading yesterday as I was studying and trying to put these things together. And as I looked and read over this particular paragraph, in fact, several paragraphs, it brought me to worship. I just had to stop thinking about how my sermon goes and just pray and praise God. You ever do that? Just stop in the middle of the day and praise him. He's really worth worthy of it. Well, uh, let's press on. So, <clears throat> we've got seven things that will take us. If I can put it this way, The Holy Spirit has given seven things that will take our hearts by the hand and draw us up to Jesus. Here's your God. Here is your Savior. Here's the one that your soul ought to be panting and hungry and longing for. We sing it, don't we? We sing a lot of things that are very sound biblical truth. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. See, John, 
I see John leaning up against you. Oh, Lord, that I could take his place at the table. Oh, but we'll see him face to face. Now, all of these things, all of this talk about with eschatology, and if, if you're wondering, why, why are we talking about this? Because this book is eschatological. It talks about now, and it talks about later. It talks about what Christ did in eternity before the foundation of the world. It talks about what he did while he was here in this world, and it talks about him in his glory. It's an eschatological book as well as a Trinitarian book. Our God permeates this thing. It was almost like when it was written, it was like a big sponge. It just soaked up as much God as it could. So why is this important? Two reasons. Number one, this eschatological theme is found throughout Hebrews. And number two, it also points to the superiority of Christ, the new covenant, and the world to come. Do you understand you have a down payment in the world to come right now, really, if you're a Christian? This is not, this is not fiction. When the very Spirit of God takes up residence within you, the power of heaven to come dwells within you. And me, weak, feeble, failing vessels of dust, how great thou art. I mean, if we understood what we were saying, I wonder if, if we could make it through how great thou art without breaking down weeping. Great, so great, he gave his son for people who hated him, his ways, and sometimes his people. That's a great God. He's glorious. And how did he save wretches such as we? He gave his son. And from this first chapter all the way to the end of the last chapter, it's all about God's great high priest. He did everything infinitely necessary to save us from our sin, from ourselves. From our self-worship, let alone our other idolatries. So, to show the vast superiority of God's Son, we will look at seven descriptions that are piled up. And and they're, they're really like so many steps right up into glory before the throne of God. I mean, set your soul on these things. And look at Christ. This is your God. This is your Savior. It's right here. So, the first one is this. God appointed His Son, heir of all things. And notice the little word right after the end of it. Lordship. We're going to end with that today, and we're going to talk about it next week. But we're going to go this far with it. We live in a day that hates authority. Even many that profess to be Christians hate God's authority. Oh, they'll talk about it, but they just don't want anybody else to talk to them about authority. Let 
me say with, with, with all gentleness and I trust with all grace. It has been said that I believe that pastors have absolute authority. It has been said that I believe that fathers have absolute authority. It's been said that I believe that human authority can and is absolute. If you have heard that, let me say it to you as gently as I can. It is a lie, and I have preached the very opposite thing from this pulpit for years. <clears throat> no human authority can be absolute. There is one human authority. Jesus Christ. That's it. He's the only human that could say all authority, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. All right. <clears throat> Should that particular falsehood float your way, all you have to do is go back and listen to my series on the qualification of elders and you will hear me say on several occasions, no pastor has absolute authority. <clears throat> I did a free grace broadcaster on authority. It says no human being has absolute authority. Now, why make a point of that? Because it is absolutely absolutely essential that we realize there is one absolute authority and that is God and we have his word to express his authority to us that's the authority that we're always responsible to and those who have been given authority as human beings if they are acting according to the authority of God's word they are speaking authoritatively, not because of themselves, but because of the authoritative word of God. That's why it's vital for governments, for churches, pastors, and for fathers to understand God's delegated authority to us. <clears throat> so, Jesus is the Lord, and he is the one to whom all of us must bow. And we will either do it willingly in this world, because we have a new heart, or in the day of judgment, we will drop down before him, and there won't be any argument. Everyone that said, God's not real, Jesus didn't live, that's not true, the resurrection didn't happen, they will bow. Right. They will bow to the king. There won't be one standing. There won't be one argument lifted up. Not one. Not one. We live in a lawless day. We'll talk about that more in the future. But God has been appointed. I mean, God has appointed His Son the heir of all things. It's all His. It's all His. If He has all power... And he's created and owns all things. 
He's the Lord. Nobody else. You find human beings all the time wanting to act like they have absolute authority. But let me press you in this. The text says once again, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom? Whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Of all things. Now, I need to say something for clarification. This may be something you've never thought about. And when we get new things, sometimes they're a little hard to keep in our minds. I will bring it up from time to time because it too runs through the book. And it's this. The son who became son. What does that mean? The son who became son. That's actually a very biblical statement. This letter speaks of Christ as son in two ways. R.B. Jameson's helpful book, The Paradox of Sonship, summarizes the paradox this way. Jesus is the son. uh, And let me quote it. He begins by saying Jesus is the son who became son. And then he says, quote, First, Son designates Jesus' distinct mode of divine existence. He's God. He's the eternal Son of God. For those of you that were with us in our six studies on the Trinity, I hope this will begin to help. The paradox of the Son is this. The first thing is that Jesus is in his distinct mode of of divine existence. The Son eternally exists as God and as distinct from the Father and the Spirit. Second, the Son also designates the office of messianic rule to which Jesus is appointed at his enthronement. Before God created the heavens and the earth... There was the eternal son of God. But he was not Jesus the man. That did not exist until history. Remember, there's a virgin named Mary. And the Holy Spirit moves upon her womb. And brings the very power of God. And unites with humanity. What a miracle. This is the God-man. He's not half God and half man. He is truly God and truly man in one person. You say, that's hard to understand. Mm -hmm. It's as difficult to understand as the Trinity. And this is one of the members of the Trinity. Brethren, we're dealing with God. We're not dealing with some little wizard of Oz out there that has us you know amazed at who and what he is and then we find out well he's not really much after all no this is the God who spoke the universe into existence spoke the universe into existence so second I repeat son also designates the office of messianic rule to which Jesus is appointed at his enthronement. 
Jesus is appointed son when he sits down at God's right hand in heaven. See, when he sat down, he was sitting down upon the throne that had been prepared for him. Spirits don't need to sit down. But this is the God-man. And he sits in glory. And he has just completed the work purposed before the foundation of the world. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension up into glory and then being seated at the Father's right hand. He's accomplished everything God the Father sent him to do. And in that sense, God owned him as the messianic son. The God-man. Both of those things appear here in Hebrews. God before the foundation of the world and the Son, the Son of God before the foundation of the world and the Son of God after he's accomplished everything that the Lord has given him. He is rewarded. He is given all authority in heaven and earth. That's why he says it in Matthew 28. As the Son of God without the incarnation, he had all authority in heaven and earth. He owned all things, but he came into this world to save his people from their sins. How did he do that? He became man. A miracle was worked in a Jewish virgin's womb and brought forth our Savior, our God-man, truly God, truly man, one person. Glory to God. That's so, that's so big. It's just like somebody saying, as I did a few weeks ago, the universe is 93 billion light years across. Nobody here, your mind can't fathom that. It's just numbers. And that's something that God made. God is all glorious. Wondrous King, all-glorious, sovereign Lord. Victorious. We don't think much about God, and that's why we reduce him all the time. He's always on a diet in our minds, it seems like. He's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. When we should be going to this book and see him getting bigger and bigger and more awesome. Breathtaking, overwhelming, radiant, splendid, majestic. You can run out of words. He's God. The word God is simply a curse word for most people. And that's the devil's work. So, let's go back just for a moment to this son who became son. So Jesus is appointed son when he sits down at his father's right hand in heaven. That's why the ascension is so important. I encourage you, if you've never read the FGB on ascension, it will bless your soul. Uh -uh. Jesus was humiliated as a man, and then he was exalted as the God-man. His exaltation is extraordinary. God, his father, said, it's all yours, son. Everything. You've got the power. Rule. And that's what he's doing. 
He's not waiting on men to do something. That's a made-up God. He's not up there going, oh, man, I wish I could save somebody today. Oh, but their will is so big. I just can't reach them. Let's all squeak for God. No. He says, I saw you in your blood and I said, live. And that's the only reason you believe. God worked. You didn't. You are saved by the grace of God from beginning to end. Wait, I heard a man preaching about this once and I was in the class where it was being taught. And a man stood up and he was red in the face, y'all. And I mean, he looked like he'd been out at the beach all day. He was red as he could be. And he said, are you telling me that I had nothing to do with my salvation? The teacher said, yes. He was furious, absolutely furious. Why? Pride, exactly right. And decisionism makes people who can say, I made a decision for Jesus. You need to, too. No, you need to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Blind people don't open their own eyes. Dead people don't get up and run around. Jesus accomplished everything infinitely necessary to save God's people, and they send that blessed Holy Ghost to come into dark, hardened, God-hating hearts and opens them so that they'll believe on the living Christ. Thank you so much, Lord. That's what he does. Because we can't say, oh, well, you know, God saved me, but I had at least 5% of that. Mm-mm. It's all his glory. So, part of that was Jesus doing everything infinitely necessary to secure and then to apply that salvation. The son who became son. He was the eternal son. And then he became man. And then he did what God the Father sent him to do and he accomplished it all. And as he rose up and came into his father's presence and sat in that blessed throne. He was appointed heir of all things. And that means he's the Lord. Today, we have a poor and weak and feeble Jesus who would like to save people, but they're too strong for him. Poor God. Now, this son who became son sends out that spirit at his time, his way. He, if it pleases him, he will wait till you are at the bottom of your cesspool to say, live. Say, well, well, what do I do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Well, I don't think I'm going to do that. You've just said, I am dead where I sit. And you need someone to breathe life into you. And there's a God who does. Now, the last part here, I've 
think I've probably completely butchered Brother Jameson's uh, quote here. But Jesus' appointed son, when he sits down at the right hand of, of the Father in heaven, third, Jesus can become the messianic son only. Can't miss this. Jesus can become the messianic son only because he is the divine son incarnate. In other words, let me put it another way. There's no salvation apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It takes someone who was fully God, truly God, and truly man to accomplish what we needed. Another man, no matter how fine, no matter how wonderful, no matter how strong and glorious and religious he was, he could never save your soul. Because if he's got one sin to his account, he can't save you. Only the one who kept God's law, only the one that went to the cross for our broken laws, only the one that rose from the dead can save you. And he does. Oh, sinners, he saves sinners. Are there any sinners here? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Jesus could only accomplish this as God and man. As Christ, the God-man, Jesus inherited the messianic kingdom when he lived, died upon Calvary's cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, and sat down on the right hand of God. Is there any wonder in your mind why all the citizens of heaven are round about his throne and saying, glory, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto thee. So, we must read carefully as we work through Hebrews so that we may discern when the Holy Spirit is talking about the Son of God in the sense of His Trinitarian deity and the Son as the eternal Son united to humanity in Jesus. Both of those are talked about here. The Son. This is the, this is the way to remember it. The Son who became Son. The Son, the second one of the Trinity in eternity. And then the Son who was united with humanity. Same deity, but he took humanity to himself. And then he died on Calvary's cross. That's why God became man. God cannot die. God cannot bleed. But Jesus, the God-man, could do both. But that's why we have salvation. That is why we are sent. It's his precious blood that saved us. Well, okay. I'm going to stop right here. It says in our outline, Christ's deity and humanity were and are essential For our salvation. I will say that again. Christ's deity and humanity were here. uh, Were and are essential for our salvation. Let me urge you this week. Especially those of you that are members. Take take your confession. And dive into chapter 8. Oh I'm so busy. If you're so busy. At least read and think about the first two paragraphs. 
the first two paragraphs. If you want food for your soul, something that lifts up your, your, your soul to praise, it's right there. Chapter 8 is my favorite chapter in the confession. It's the most beautiful statement in just a few paragraphs of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that I've ever read. You may not think the same, but I do hope you at least find it helpful. Because we're going to pick up there next week. This is the heir of all things. We're going to talk about his lordship. He has done what the Father gave him to do, and now he is enthroned in his glory. He is the boss. He is the one running things. And you're either walking with him or you're ignoring him. No other option. You're either listening to him or you are running as quickly as your spiritual feet will take you to everlasting judgment in hell. Aren't any other options? You are running that way to lie down in the flames. Or you are running that way, looking forward to seeing him in all his glory. So, I pray this week you will commune with him and love him and enjoy him and drink deeply at the fountain of life. And that when you come next week, everything you hear, you say, oh, I know that already. I've been delighting in this all week. Well, great. You'll enjoy it more then. <clears throat> Brethren, Jesus Christ is our Savior. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things because God became man and secured not only our salvation, but God's kingdom. Amen. More of him, God willing, next week. May we come thirsty and slake our thirst in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O Christ, thou art the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O oh Lord, by thy spirit and word, may we reach up to that place and fellowship with thee this week. May our hearts soar past the heartaches and the troubles of this world. And may our hearts Feast on thee, and as thou dost satisfy us, help us to tell someone else about thee. Help us to do that. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, brethren, we have a baptism right now. We are delighted absolutely beyond words. It will take me and the baptizand. Uh, and my helper uh, to get dressed for that. Those of you that cannot stay with us, uh, we pray that the Lord has blessed you in, in hopes that we will see you 
again.